Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Good evening. Should we pray? Uh, Jesus, oh God, we don't take your presence for granted. God, we thank you for being with us this evening. Lord Jesus, that we get to worship you. And so now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray, God, that we might see you. God, because we know that as we hear you, we're changed. As we see you, we're changed. And so we pray that we, you'd open our hearts now, God, because we long to be transformed. Amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight we are carrying on with our Heroes series. Last week we looked at Joseph together, and um, this week we're going to be looking at Elijah. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, then why don't you flick open to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And um, just to set the scene a little bit, in the kind of the story of what's unfolding for God's people, we arrive at this book of Kings. And before that, before we meet Elijah, David has unified and brought together all the tribes of Israel. And so for the first time, they are this united kingdom. And then from that line, from David is the first king, and it's promised that from David's line would come a messianic king that would lead God's people into all of the promises that God has for them. Okay, And so then we arrive into the book of Kings, and the book of Kings, as you might imagine, kind of tells us all about the kings that follow David. And we start with Solomon, and Solomon starts pretty well, and then he decides to marry uh, some other daughters of kings from the neighboring uh, villages, neighboring towns and tribes, and basically leads Israel into idolatry. After Solomon comes his son, who kind of does even worse, and then he does so badly, he actually introduces slave labor tax, which causes the north and south parts of the kingdom to divide. And so we arrive into kings, and this kind of united, the united tribes have been broken apart, and we have the north and the south. And as the book of one and two kings go along, it basically outlines 20 kings in the north and the south. It just kind of jumps between the two. And so you've got these main players, you've got these kings, which it kind of it does a little running commentary on whether or not they're righteous or not. And all 20 in the north are bad, and 12 in the south are bad, and 8 are kind of okay. But along with these kings, you also have the prophets. The prophets were these kind of wandering men of God, and their job was to hold God's people and hold the kings to account to the covenant that God had made with them. Right, So they kind of were like watchdogs over the covenant. And what they would do is when they would see God's people stepping into idolatry, they'd stand against it. They'd stand against idolatry and injustice. And so that was their job. And they would say, you were called to be blessed and to be a blessing. And when they're not living up to that, these men of God would stand there and they would stand against kings. And they would call God's people back into what they were called to do. Okay, so that's the scene, and in the kind of the most, the two most famous prophets that we come across were both based, both based in the north, and they were Elijah and his prophet uh, disciple Elisha. 
Okay, and those of us that know the story, Elisha ends up asking for double the anointing of Elijah. And uh, what you might not know is that the Bible outlines seven miraculous things that Elijah does and 14 miraculous things that Elisha does. And so it kind of gives you a little cheeky wink there for people who are really excited like me by that kind of thing. But anyway, so we arrive into this story with Elijah and Elijah comes up against King Ahab and his Canaanite wife, Jezebel. Okay, and between 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19, we have these two incredible stories play out. They're kind of these these stories that are sandwiched together. And we're going to be focusing on the second one. But to understand what's going on in the second one, we need to look at the first. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. But you'll probably know the story. And it's about when Elijah has a showdown with 450 prophets of Baal. Okay, now Baal was this idol that had been brought into God's kingdom, and he was the God of the sun, and he was the God of fertility. Okay, and idolatry is important because idolatry was the Achilles heel of God's people throughout the entire Old Testament. They were always worried that their God wasn't going to be powerful enough. And so when they tried to have a backup plan, they kind of went to an idol and said, if it doesn't work out with the God of Israel, at least we've got this guy. And they'd go and they'd worship and they'd sacrifice and they'd offer to this prophet. And so Elijah turns up on the scene and he says, enough's enough. Let's have a showdown. And what we're going to do is we're going to put it to the test. Is Baal God or is the God of Israel God? Let's see what happens. And so he sets the scene and he says, let's stick an altar up. And what you can do, you're 450 prophets. You can pray and they pray and they cut themselves because that was their custom and they chant and they move around and nothing happens, right? What they're looking for is fire to come down from heaven, but nothing happens. And I love it because it goes along and, and as it's kind of they're chanting and they're cutting themselves and they're getting all worked up, Elijah's just kind of being all cocky and he's like, oh, maybe your God's relieving himself. Maybe you could shout a little bit louder. And at the point that they give up, the Bible has this great little verse. It says, and no one was there and no one listened. And then Elijah comes along, this single person, and he says, you know what, why don't we make this harder? I'm so convinced that my God is powerful. And you know what, I'm so convinced that he's powerful that a small miracle or a big miracle is all the same to him. So why don't you pour water onto that altar? It's going to be fine. And then he, so they pour three bucket loads of water onto, of water onto the altar. And then um, he says this really simple prayer. He says, God of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove that you're real and turn the hearts of the people back towards you. That's his prayer. Stunning. And then fire falls down from heaven. It burns up the altar. And all of the prophets of Baal are put to the sword. Okay? It's this sort of stunning moment in Israel's history. And then just after that, Elijah goes. It hasn't rained. He prayed that it would stop raining for three and a half years. And then he goes back and he prays again. And he says, Lord, would you send the rain? And all this rain comes. Stunning moment. But I just wanted to focus on one thing. Because I think as we move forward into this kind of series looking at heroes... I want to know, like, how do we interact with them? How do we interact with those people in the Bible? And actually, in the book of James, it talks about Elijah. And I think it's helpful for us to understand how do we interact with this portion of Scripture. And in James, James is encouraging the people to have prayers of faith. And he says this. He says, The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. 
He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. Okay. There is some patterns of thinking uh, in Christianity called cessationalism. And basically, really simply, cessationalism is this idea that there were three eras of miracles that happened in human history. Okay, there was Moses and Joshua, there was Elijah and Elisha, and there was Jesus and the apostles. This sort of strange season where God just seems to do amazing things, and then they ceased, right? Cessationalism. It's about as complicated as it gets, that word. Okay, but that doesn't seem to be what James is saying at all. James actually says, when you look at Elijah, think about this. Elijah was a man just like you, and so you can be a man just like Elijah. Okay? And so as we read about these heroes, as we look at the Josephs and the Elijahs and all the Davids, all of these people... We mustn't fall into the trap of setting them up as monuments that we marvel at. What we have to do is look at them as models that we are called to imitate. Okay? You, Elijah was a man just like you, and so you can be a man just like Elijah. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. But anyway, what we're going to be focusing on today is what happens right after this story. And so we're going to be reading from 1 Kings 19, if you're there, portion of Scripture. And so I want you to have in your brain what is happening for Elijah at the moment, okay? He's just had a victory. God's just proved himself faithful and powerful. All of the prophets have been killed. It has started to rain because he prayed. I mean, life is going well for Elijah, okay? And now let's read what happens. Now Ahab, Ahab, you'll remember, is the king, told Jezebel, Jezebel was the queen, his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. How many people have prayed that prayer? I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some uh, bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate and he drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha the son of Saphat from <laughs> Abel Mahaloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, so wait, back up a minute. So Elijah has stared 450 prophets in the face. And he said, just you watch. My God is about to do something amazing. Right? There's a cocky fearlessness in Elijah at this point. And everything goes right. God shows up. God shows powerful. And then a message comes from Jezebel. And his fearlessness goes to such deep terror that he becomes suicidal. What a difference a day makes, right? What is happening to Elijah? Like, it would maybe make sense if you could understand, okay, this is the first time he's threatened with death. But he would have known if God hadn't have shown up to him, he would have been humiliated, he would have been imprisoned, and he would have been executed. So what has happened to Elijah between those two moments? 24 hours. Why has he gone from such deep fearlessness to such intense terror that he has become suicidal? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that the key to understanding Elijah's journey is in this simple sentence. The power of the Lord God came upon Elijah and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Okay, and it's on that journey he gets the message. So where, what was Jezreel? Okay, so Jezreel was the capital city of the northern kingdoms. Okay, so it was home to Ahab and to Jezebel. And I'd like to suggest that the reason that Elijah is running towards Jezreel is because he is convinced this is the moment when everything changes. Okay, he's running towards the king and queen because he knows, I have just shown your prophets to be worthless, your idols to be powerless, and something is about to happen, and God is about to change the nation in the day. Surely Ahab and Jezebel's hearts have been changed. Surely they are about to declare that the God of Israel is the one true God. Elijah is running because he thinks his ship has come in, right? He is running, a smile on his face, a victory behind him, and then suddenly the messenger comes and bang. It's like a gut punch. It's like his legs get taken out from underneath him. Do you see what's happened for Elijah there? Jezebel's heart hasn't been changed. Back when he was facing the prophets of Baal, it was difficult, but it was still going according to plan. Right? But this wasn't supposed to happen. 
And suddenly in this moment, with that message from Jezebel, what happens is that he could handle the fear of death, but what he couldn't handle was becoming disappointed in God. And suddenly in this moment, Elijah becomes disappointed in God. And that's what I want you to see. As a Christian, we need to learn how do we handle when we become disappointed in God? How do we handle it when life throws us a curveball and we're like, this wasn't supposed to go like that? And I want to put to you, the reason that Elijah struggles isn't because God isn't working. It's because God isn't working the way that Elijah wanted him to. Right? But in his kind of true true grace and true wonder, true beauty that is God, God calls him home. And um, it's funny because if you remember the prayer that Elijah prays is, God, show yourself powerful and change the people's heart back to you. And what you're about to see is that God answers that prayer for Elijah. And so we're going to look through a few keys, um, which we just read about. And these are keys I'd like to say to you. When life wants you to become disappointed in God, where do you turn? Like, what do you do? What's your journey back? And so the first one, and um, this is a really complicated one. God gives him some sleep and some food. Right? It doesn't get much more complicated than that. Sometimes we can be so more spiritual than God. Like God realizes that we are mind, body, and soul, right? And so never think of it unspiritual to attend to your physical needs. God knows that the first thing that Elijah needs in that moment isn't some deep intercession. It isn't some freedom in Christ course. What it is (laughs) is some food, right? I wonder for you, you know, sometimes I have so many conversations with people and they're like, oh man, the devil's really on my back. And I'm like, okay, what time have you been going to bed? And they're like, I'm just super hooked on Game of Thrones, like 2 a.m. most nights. Okay, well, when's the last time you had a holiday? You know, I've actually been saving, so I haven't been on holiday for like nine months. Okay, maybe the problem isn't so much spiritual as it is that God made you to be a trying being. Maybe what God's prescription right now would be a lazy Saturday, a good hearty meal with some friends, and to go for a run. Right? We are called to be trying beings, and I love the thing. As God is leading Elijah back into hope, the first thing he attends to is his physical needs. Okay, and then we move forward. Um, And then Elijah comes and he journeys for 40 days and 40 nights and he comes to the mountain of God, which is called Horeb. Okay, and this is the second thing. The second thing that Elijah does is that he, he sees to his spiritual needs. And what I love about this is that in a place where Elijah is suffering with disappointment in God, it doesn't drive him away. It drives him into a place of the presence. Okay? He steps into prayer. He steps into worship. He journeys for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a long journey, but he knows I have to get to the place where I know where I'm going to find the presence of God. Okay, so as you're disappointed, he will go on to have an incredibly honest conversation with God. It's just me. You've just left me. It's all me. You know, he's very honest. He pours out his heart before the Lord, and it's important that we do that. But the thing that you need to be careful of is that when you have questions, when you have disappointments, are you allowing those things to drive you further into God, or are they asking you to isolate yourself from him? 
Do you see the difference? Where is the place of presence that you have developed that you go back to in these moments? For me, um, and I told people this this morning, when I'm struggling with something, the last place I go is a 24-7 prayer room. Don't tell Pete, okay? <laughs> and the reason is, and Hannah will tell you, I am prone to intensity, okay? You wouldn't believe it by my calm demeanor, but, um, you know... In my weaknesses, I go intense. And I found that if I'm struggling with something, when I go into a prayer room and I'm there all by myself, I get even more intense. And my thoughts go to deep, dark places. And so what I found is where I go is I go for a long drive. For me, there is something about doing something that engages part of my brain on almost like an autopilot. But I encounter God and I come back to him. But maybe for you it is a prayer room. Maybe for you it's worship. Maybe for you it's running. I don't know. Whatever it is. But what is the place of presence for you that when you have questions, you return to? Okay. And the next thing that we're going to see is um, Horeb was known by a different name in biblical times. And it's a name you might be more familiar with. Horeb was the same mountain as Sinai. Okay. And so for those of you that are kind of well acquainted with the Bible, you'll be thinking that Sinai was famous because it was the place where Moses went to meet with the Lord. Okay, So when Moses went to meet with the Lord, he would walk up the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And actually, if you probe a little bit deeper, you'll realize that the Bible is sort of saying something to us in that. Because it says that Elijah goes and he finds a cave. Another word that was easily translated in the Hebrew for cave was cleft. Okay, And so some theologians would say there is a good chance that Elijah was in the very same cave, the very same cleft that God placed Moses when he caused all of his goodness to pass before him. And did you hear the language? He says, Elijah, the presence of God is about to pass by. Do you see it's the exact same phrase, Moses? The presence of God is about to pass by. And now, this is important because um, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read this story, and I read that, you know, when I was young, and it was like God sent the earthquake and the wind and the fire, I didn't really think, because it says that God wasn't in them, I kind of read that as they weren't from God. And so I kind of thought like it was just a day of unusual geological activity, (laughs) right? I think I was young, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the forecast for today is earthquake, winds, and fire. But God isn't in those things. Obviously, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is obviously saying that those were from God. He just wasn't in those things. And so why is that important? Well, for the person who stood on Mount Sinai and met with the presence of God, God appeared to that person as fire, right? We met God. Moses met God in the burning bush. And then he followed the pillar of fire every day. We see God in other places turn up as wind. We see God turn up as earthquakes. right? So the Bible is saying that God sent these things. The exact same things that he turns up for other people in other ways. But for Elijah, he wasn't in them. What's going on here? Well, cast your minds back to Moses. What was happening for Moses? Moses was called to go and face down Pharaoh. And he was afraid that his God wasn't going to be powerful enough. And so what did God show up as? Power, fire, plagues. Okay? But then you jump over to Elijah, and what is he? He's convinced that God is going to have to turn up as power. 
He's going to overthrow a government. He's going to change a nation in a day. And for Elijah, God appears as a gentle whisper. Do you see what's happening? For both people, they had placed God in a box, assumed that he could only operate in one certain way, and when he didn't, he freaked out. They became derailed. They partnered with disappointment because they both forgot that his ways are far beyond our ways. Right? Do you see what's happening here for Elijah? God is saying, yeah, Elijah, I could do all of those things, but I'm actually doing something different. I'm coming as a still, small voice. But Elijah couldn't see what God was doing because he has become blinded by what he thought he should be doing. And then the amazing thing is that God goes on to say to Elijah, you think you're the only one? I actually still have 7,000. 7,000 that you know nothing about. And that's the thing. As soon as we take our eyes away from what we think that God should be doing, we'll realize that he is doing so much more than we could ask, think, or imagine. This almost exact same scene plays out again with another one of the prophets. And in fact, in the New Testament, and in fact, the Bible says that this prophet was the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's story is that he leaps in his mother's womb when he comes into contact with Jesus. He's the one who sees him coming down the shore and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the first person to say that about Christ. He's the one who baptizes Jesus. But then you go forward in the story a little bit and John finds himself in prison. And then something happens and he sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, are you the one or should we look for another? Can you hear the heartache in John there? Like, this wasn't supposed to happen. I wasn't supposed to be in prison. And what I love about Jesus' reply, you can read it in Matthew 11, is that Jesus doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't say, I thought you were a prophet, right? We don't see any of that. But nor does he pity John. We don't see Jesus saying, I'm so sorry, I know, like, sorry you're in prison. Do you know what he does say? He says, go back and tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The devil is the god of tunnel vision, okay? He's the master of tunnel vision. What he loves to do is reduce the entirety of what God is doing down to that one question and that one unanswered prayer. And actually, when you bring those to Jesus, so often what we'll do is we'll say, take a step back, expand. Your disappointment has blinded you. But actually, if you step out of that, you'll realize that I am doing incredible things. The easiest way I know to step out of that is thanksgiving. There is something deeply spiritual and profound about just choosing every day to give thanks for what God is doing. I don't know if you've ever noticed that with someone. You say, like, what are you thankful for today? And at the beginning, they always struggle. Like, I don't know anyone who kind of finds that easy straight away. When I was growing up, I had a little brother who was... uh, like 10 at the time and we were doing a thing where we go around I've got quite a big family as you know we employ some of them and um, I've got four brothers and so at the time my little brother was eight and um, my parents decided to do a like a Thanksgiving circle around the table was something they were trying to get us to learn about Thanksgiving and so before the food came out we all went round, and everyone was saying something and everyone was kind of thinking and being like oh god thank you for this and that and it comes to my little eight-year-old brother and he just says 
thank you, Lord, that I don't have leprosy. (laughs) Totally took me off guard. Realized I found out at school they were learning about leprosy. Um, But it was hilarious. But I thought, man, it's so interesting. There is so much to be thankful for, right? And he's nailed it. At eight eight years old, he'd nailed it. But there is something about thanksgiving that just clears away the haze. And so I wonder if um, maybe we could get the the band back up. Um, I wonder if we could just respond to this a little bit. And, you know, maybe for you, you're finding yourself here and like, life's okay. Like, it's going fine. It's not too bad. But you realize that somewhere along the line, your kind of prayers got a little bit bland, like a little bit vanilla. You stopped believing that God was going to do kind of really amazing things. Like, you're not a cessationalist, but you do flirt with the idea a little bit. Like, maybe the same God who did those incredible things, like, maybe doesn't really do that. Maybe doesn't really encounter and operate in the world anymore. And God is wanting to say, like, remember, as we learn about these heroes, let them pour fuel on the fire of your prayers. Like, maybe it's time to start dreaming big again. Or maybe for you, you know, you really relate to Elijah's journey. Like, you know exactly what it's like to be running towards Jezreel. Maybe this year, you know, you were like, this is the year that I'm going to get a promotion. Maybe this is the year that relationship is going to find some clarity. Maybe this is the year of healing. Like, I've been prophesied that God was going to heal. Whatever it is for you, you know what it is to be running towards Jezreel and suddenly something happens. That bill comes in. The other person gets promoted. That relationship actually struggles more than it gets easier. Whatever it is, and you're running and suddenly bang. And you've realized that disappointment has been allowed to take root in your heart. And you no longer bring that to Jesus. Suddenly you find that you're isolating yourself a little bit. And the word of the Lord to you today is step away from that pain for a second. Open your eyes. What is God doing all around you? Who are the 7,000 that you've forgotten about? You feel like you're all by yourself. And you're like, because the Bible says that he doesn't call us servants, but he calls us friends. And what's his definition for that? He has made known to us everything that he sees the Father doing. God doesn't want us. I I get the whole thing of like, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And he does do that. But he doesn't want to do that in a way that you're blind and you're playing second guessing all the time. Jesus says that you're a friend. I want to tell you exactly what I'm doing. And so maybe we could jump to our feet. Um, I'm going to pray. And, you know, if you want to come down, if there's anything tonight, you know, we've got Hannah and Mike and Jazz and George. And these guys are incredible. We'd love to pray for you. But maybe you just want to respond yourself. You know, maybe the kind of spirit is whispering to you about stepping back in, you know, realizing that God maybe isn't going to work the exact way you thought he was, but he actually has an incredible plan for your life and you stop believing that somewhere. We always set up idols in places that we don't really trust that God's going to come through for us. And an idol is anything that you have to consult before you say yes to Jesus. You know, so maybe Jesus is calling you to be outrageously generous, but you realize that you've got to go and check with that savings account first because you're worried that he won't really be your provider. Maybe the Lord is calling you to commit to this church, but you've always got restless eyes looking. Maybe somewhere else would be better. Maybe some other job would be better. So maybe some other relationship would be 
better. And the Lord is saying, like, trust me. And so, Lord, we, we love you. Thank you for your word, God, that speaks straight to our hearts. Thank you for the testimony of incredible men and women in the Bible, God, who, who showed us the adventure of living with you. And so, Lord, I pray specifically for everyone here who's got a little bit disappointed when life's been a little bit tricky. God, and the enemy has been whispering lies about the fact that you're not really powerful. I pray like just like those people on that mountaintop. I thank you, God, that you're changing hearts in this room. You're calling us home. You're calling us back into a place of trust. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.